The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. You know, it's a real privilege to be able to share this Sunday in a lot of different ways, but to be able to conclude what's been a really special study through the book of Esther. Uh, I really, this has been a, one of my favorites, and I really felt like... Uh, Jonathan went above and beyond as he was uh, opening it to me in ways that I, to be honest with you, I hadn't seen before. You'd think I would have by now, but I hadn't. And it's really exciting to see that happen. (laughs) It is interesting, though, that he left me with the last message, and it's the one that it's boring. I mean, nothing happens. It's just, it's just some proclamations and some pronouncements and an epilogue. Uh, Merry Christmas, Ed. Okay, that's, y'all fired up for that. But the reality is, he and I had talked about it. The most important and far-reaching part of the whole book of Esther comes today. Isn't that interesting? It's not when all the drama occurs... It's when the results and the ongoing impact we begin to see. Um, The book of Esther, as you remember, oh, and by the way, uh, there were different ones, and I really like some of the the names yet, absent or present, asleep or awake, revenge or rescue. This morning we're going to say, keep this in mind, relapse or remember. Okay, you got that? Relapse or remember. You get that? You probably picked up the whole message. We can just go worship now. The book of Esther began with God's people being compromised in the culture, weren't they? That means you're totally engulfed in it. Matter of fact, they were compliant in that culture. As, you know, Mordecai and Esther were hiding things. But I thought of, and I said, they were even comfortable in that culture. So it's kind of easy for us to look at the idea or the concept of being compromised, maybe even compliant, but then for us to ask ourselves the question, have we become comfortable in our culture? And that's not a healthy place to be. Now, we also saw as it worked through that they were rescued, they were awakened, they were saved to their identity as God's people and a continuing life. But the question remains, even though they've been awakened by some dramatic things in the book, will they stay awake? Okay, so now let's keep all of this, keep putting that into you and me, all right? Are we going to stay awake spiritually? What will keep them from relapsing into the same conditions of compromise? Seems like uh, they and we face that same challenge. Uh, I Have you ever noticed in your life that there are times when God works in some really special ways and and you have that mountaintop kind of experience? When you feel his presence, you know he's in charge and things are going well. What's interesting is those are part of the cycle of our lives in, in Christ. Because what's interesting is, is after the mountaintops tend to come what? Yeah, yeah, valleys. 
Now, what's interesting is when we come into the valley after a mountaintop, you would think that we were on that mountaintop, that emotion, that spiritual awakening, everything that we felt and knew, and, and, and we knew it was real, and God's presence was there in a special way. Things happen. Circumstances go a little bit awry. Uh, we become disappointed with God because things aren't going the way we expected them to go and the way the mountaintop would seem to have shown. And as we get into that valley, we become disappointed and instead of really thinking about his love and his protection, we lose our gratefulness. We lose our thankfulness. <laughs> uh, it robs us of the joy of the mountaintop. Now, God hasn't changed. Circumstances have, but we haven't changed. Our relationship with him has not changed. It's that same relationship that we had when we were on the mountaintop and his presence was, was just all around us. It's just that now his presence is still all around us, but our experience of that seems to have dimmed a little bit. Um, so we tend to go into a time of, of depression or spiritual blahs, don't we? And we're looking for some kind of uh, new mountaintop. Of course, the other thing can happen to us when we're on a mountaintop. Uh, we think it is so wonderful and it's so beautiful that we're never going to have to come down. Now, look what happened to the Israelites themselves as they went into the promised land. Over and over, they were warned, when you come into the promised land, do not what? Some of you remember that. Do not forget me. Because when you do, all of that milk and honey is going to turn into vinegar and mold. And they did. They kept forgetting God, didn't they? Now, I know you and I would never do that when we are and things are going well for us. I mean, we would never stop to think that we're in control and that we got life by the handle. Or that, you know, we deserve all of these good things. So then we get into that attitude, and we forget how much we need God. And what happens when we forget? Who reminds us? He can't let us go that way. He can't let us stay in that place of not forgetting and forgetting him and not being aware of him. So he has to do something to bring us back. Now... <laughs> Oftentimes, that's not necessarily a painless uh, bring back, but it's important, and we are grateful for it after it happens. Well, I also uh, thought through this. Is this why Purim was even brought about? Is this why this whole passage was written? Is this why it was so important for Esther to send out and Mordecai to send out these proclamations that were so ironclad. We're going to read through it real quickly again, but I'm going to point out a couple of places where you see the ironclad part of it. I feel like this is God trying to protect his people from either of those extremes. He's trying to keep them in his hand and say, keep reminding yourself about who I am. All of the sacrifices and the law of the Old Testament brought into the promised land they were to be there to remind them of who they, whose they were and who they were, all right? 
Now, <clears throat> let's read this declaration again that they sent out in chapter 9 of the book of Esther. And part of it, if you haven't been here for the other parts of the book, it, the highlights <laughs> are kind of here. You'll catch on to what the sermon's about by just looking at that. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far. By the way, I'm not sure I can pronounce that one, and I've always heard it Xerxes, so bear with me on that one. He obliged them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. If you weren't here, there was a declaration that went out from Haman, who was second to the king, that on a certain day, all the Jews were going to be killed. But then Queen Esther remembered who she was, had the courage, and they were, they were totally uh, saved. And now this new letter is going out to say, protect yourselves. You are now the ones that can protect yourselves from all your enemies. And it was incredible. The, the Jews were totally saved. And they are now in this wonderful place in the kingdom. Okay, on the, these days of the month, they want to turn it. Let's look at verse 23. It's the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned from, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, and they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Man, that sounds like an incredible Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, the whole nation, all of the Jews, what a tremendous celebration. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews did what? What's it say they did? Hello, oh, there, it's, down, it's, on, it's in your electronic Bible right there. They what? They firmly obligated themselves. They signed a contract. But it was with their hearts, their souls. I mean, this was ironclad. They firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So then Queen Esther affirmed it, Mordecai sent it out, and it became law. Purim, an annual feast of God's people to remember who they are and, and whose they are. I love God's irony in this whole book. I have to admit it, okay? I don't know why, but it, okay, maybe it's because of my legal background. I love it when things get twisted. 
But look at what happened in the irony of that. Haman, thinking that he was planning a great day of honor for himself, wasn't he? He went into the king. King said, what would you do for someone that the king wants to honor? Haman says, oh, that's got to be me, so therefore I'm going to come up with a great plan. Got to ride a royal horse with royal robes and scepters and, and everything like I'm the pretend king for the day. So he's got this all planned out, and then the shoe drops, doesn't it? What happens? Haman becomes the servant of Mordecai actually has to lead the horse. Now, I don't know which is worse in that kind of a case, leading the horse or having to go behind and clean up after it. But what leading that horse with Haman on it, dressed as Haman was dressed, or more as Mordecai was on top, dressed as he was dressed, had to just eat at the very soul of Haman. Well, then another one is, it's interesting, Haman, when he thought he was on top of things, had that 75-foot pole built that he was going to hang Mordecai from. And that servant or the worker in the, uh, one of Xerxes' uh, advisors just happened to mention. Yeah, I love the way Jonathan brought that out last week. Just happened to mention. Well, you know, by the way, King, there's this wonderful 75-foot pole hanging just right outside Haman's house. Convenient, fine. And that's where he said, okay, hang him from it. So he got hung from his own pole. I love that irony, and, and, in some, and in some ways, rightfully, because we see justice being done, but it's still a little uncomfortable to celebrate those. Calling the feast Purim is as close to a permanent ironic insult that they could have done. Because it was based on the, 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 what you would do. You'd cast lots, and they called it poor, okay? And when you cast lots, and Haman did it to say, hey, man, I got this. What day should I annihilate all the Jews? And this came up. Well, it got turned around. It, it got switched completely. So every time they say the tame or the Feast of Purim, then that is the way of saying just when you think that you're in control or someone else is in control and God isn't in control, it's going to come back to you. There is no such thing as fate. It's God's hand. That whole festival, and it's still being done, it is the control of their destiny is in the hands of God. We see that in Proverbs 16.33 even says that word, that terminology. The lot is cast into the lap, and that would be casting lots or for us dice or drawing the short straw or whatever it is. You would do that, and, but every, it's every decision is from the Lord. Did I just come on? Kind of like getting it. Am I all right? All right. I really think, again, I don't really believe in fate. I don't think we do. I believe in God's hand. But the fact that we're doing this and talking about this today has a couple of meanings significantly for us on a long-term basis. What holiday did we just celebrate? Thanksgiving. Now, it's not a Christian holiday, is it? But yet, in so many ways, it is the one that is least polluted. 
You know, you think of what's happened to Christmas and even what's happened to Easter. And it's almost like Thanksgiving is not as polluted. And every reality, biblically, of the way we're supposed to be thinking about life is contained in that concept of Thanksgiving. A time of giving thanks to the Lord for his provision, his protection, his salvation, everything that's going on. That is a wonderful time. And so we're seeing how important it is that God felt like it was ironclad necessary for his people, the Jews, to celebrate this feast year after year after year after year for the purpose of reminding them who he was and their role in all of that. So do we all need that same reminder? Should Thanksgiving itself be a reminder, not of just turkey and dressing and gravy and all those wonderful things, but God's work and how much we have to be thankful for, putting God in his place, putting ourselves in our place. And also, it's the uh, not only is it a time for protection and priority in our lives, We have to look at just the the last epilogue on chapter 10. There's a reason why this epilogue is there. There always is in Scripture. And I think that we have, I think I've got an idea what that reason is. Is that me? What am I doing wrong, Glenn? Okay. Well, Lord, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you would fix this thing out here. So this is going to be aggravating. Yeah, the clip is gone, so it's not really sitting right where it's supposed to be. There it is. That's where the short is, right there. I'm about ready to go to the old-fashioned microphone. All right. The last cha- in chapter 10, just that one paragraph, the epilogue. Uh, I think there's a real reason why it's there to speak to us today. King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I don't think you could look for a better ending, could you? I mean, I mean, that's perfect ending. And it really is. It's wonderful. You just, you know, you just want to say, and they, and they do that in, 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 when they celebrate this feast even to this day every year. It's just an incredible celebration. But what's this passage really tell us? Well, first of all, no matter how well things are going here on earth, guess what? This is still not the final ending things are not going to always go well. Even for for the Jews in here. As great as Mordecai was, and I love the way in the Bible, the ESV, that paragraph is called the greatness of Mordecai. Well, as great as he was, and all that he did, it came to an end. There was eventually going to be a new king, new nation. You know, they didn't last all that long. What happens and happened to God's people after that? 
Things are looking better for the Jews, but the final picture is really disappointing. Xerxes is still taxing everybody. And even though Mordecai is taking out looking for his people, it isn't going to last. What are we really looking for? What does it say? What were the Jews really looking for? They were looking for the Messiah. We're still looking for the Messiah. Oh, we've seen his first coming, haven't we? We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's Advent. But we are still looking for the second coming. And things aren't going to be permanently better until that second coming when he comes not as the child, the Christ child, but as the Lord of all. Everything gets fixed. I mean, I stop and think about that as we look through all that's happening, even this week. Everything is fixed. Isn't that an amazing thought? And that's what we look for. But in the meantime, what we have to do is remember who are we and whose are we in the culture that we continue to live in until he returns again. It seems clear to me that we have to have this tremendous need to continue to remember those things because the world has kind of sapped away our life and our joy. Do we have repeated worship practices? Okay, let's think of the principle. What was the reason for Purim? To always remind them so they would never go back into that same place in the culture. To always remind them that God was in charge, even if you can't see his hand at work. Remember in this whole book, we don't see the name of God. It's just an amazing thing to have happen, but his hand is behind everything that goes on. How do we daily, weekly, or yearly have worship practices that will shape the way we think and even change the way we live? You see, these practices, it's supposed to be, and God thought it was so important that he made it, you know, absolute. Well, our coming in worship, every time we come in worship, wherever we are, whether it's here, at home, in your car, with your children, it's shaping you. It's shaping me. And every time we do that, it should be reminding us, don't go back. Remember, you belong to me. And you can trust me. I will protect. I will provide. All of these things on every worship practice that we do. I've heard down here a question. What are some ways that we can build these remembrances in our lives? Okay, if it's true that we have a tendency to forget, what can we do in our lives to build remembrances? What, what reminds you of God? Now there's nothing we can do, so we might as well give up and just uh, go into the valley and stay there. Do what? Births. Yes, it does. They're always in, so, so special. Even prayer itself is, isn't it? Because 
the act of going to God in prayer is putting him in his place and putting us in our place. Do what? Celebrating Advent. Celebrating Advent. Hey, you got that. Okay, let's go to the next paragraph on the message. But you're exactly right. That's one of those things. Absolutely, look at that. See, that was one of those things we thought through this. I guess this is why we need to hear the word preached over and over again. You know, it's kind of like we never hear all of the story or get all the implications. We need to keep hearing from the word. God is in charge. He's trustworthy. And that, that keeps reminding us of who we are. Uh, another thing is then every time we come to sing or pray, worship together, isn't that a reminder? Every time you do that, that's one of the reasons why a regular practice of doing that is so important. Not just because there's a law that says you've got to ch go to church on Sunday. There's a purpose behind that. It is a reminder every time we do that, even if we come. How many of you have ever come to church with a really bad attitude? Yeah, those of you that didn't raise your hand, you lied to me. <laughs> I've even known husbands and wives to come to church fighting. Can you believe that? I can't imagine that ever happening. But when we come, something happens because we're remembering who we are and we're remembering who our God is every time we do that. Uh, I like Mike Cosper in his book on Esther made this statement. Here's why we need Purim, or rather why we need a lifelong plan of remembering our story of redemption. I love that. Do you, do I, have a lifelong plan of remembering our redemption? Well, we need that because we're continually fighting against what the, this world wants to do. I couldn't go through this. We stop and think, not being willing to be conformed to this world, but we're supposed to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. That means that the world, by its very nature, tries to conform us. The enemy tries to conform us. We have to consciously transform ourselves, well, God transforms us, by the renewing of our minds. You've got to put it in the right place. You've got to remember, first of all, Prayer, reading scripture, listening to worship songs. Next Sunday, we do begin Advent. <laughs> and that is an important time. That's one of those things is it helps me to realize that, that Advent is one of those cycles that it is there that every year we are designed to remember our place in God's story. It reminds us every year we come to this and says, we are now entering a period of waiting. The word Advent means coming. What are we waiting for in those four weeks? We're waiting for Christmas, the coming of the Christ child. But it's very interesting that that's not all we're waiting for, is it? That's only the, the first thing we're waiting to, to celebrate. What we're really waiting for is the second coming, when Christ will come and make everything right. Um, 
we haven't always celebrated the Lord's table every week. And there is no rule or law that says how or how often you're supposed to celebrate the Lord's table. We just know we're supposed to do it. There's a real reason behind it. Every time we come to that table, what's happening? What do we remember? What do you remember when you come to the table? The sacrifice. What? What he did for us. Our salvation. It reminds us who we are. We are new creations in Christ. Not by what we've done, but by what he's done. So every time we come to this table, as long as we don't make it some kind of rote habit. See, that's the one thing of doing it every Sunday is we don't want it to feel like a habit. We want it to feel like a special celebration. Every time we come, we are to remember what he did for us. And that helps us to battle against compromise, complacency, or comfortability in our culture. It draws us into intimacy, thanksgiving, and service for our Lord's kingdom. You know, the uh, paragraph that's often read, 1 Corinthians 23, when, we, when you come to many different churches, when you come to communion, listen to those words because there's interesting how the word remembrance is in there. For I received, Paul is saying, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this what? Every time we do that, we do it in remembrance of him. To remember who I am, who he is. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. A constant. It was intended. It's like our own Purim in a way. Christ knew that we needed this. A regular remembrance of who he was and who we are. I also find it very interesting. We don't always focus on the next phrase in this passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Till he comes again. So in the very act of what we do, often every Sunday, except for Lent, we are remembering and proclaiming. We are remembering what he has done for us, and we are proclaiming who we are in him. And we also proclaim that we are waiting, waiting for his return. I guess there's a sense that, you know, when God speaks to us, we have that chance after he's speak, spoken to us. I call it, to, to, to re, the words we used this morning at the beginning, to relapse or to remember. That's our two choices this morning. Are we going to relapse into our spiritual sameness or deadness? Are we going to remember anew in a fresh way all that he's done for us and the absolute glory that awaits when he returns?
So come, as we come before the table this morning, let's, let's do that in a special way, remembering and proclaiming. What is it that God is saying and drawing us to himself? All the whole book of Esther was geared to awakening them, drawing them back to who they were supposed to be, proclaiming who God was, and we now come to that very same place for ourselves. Who are we? Who is he?